Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place in these days? Jesus asked them, What things? Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We only know what we know. Or perhaps a better way to put it is we only know what we've been told. On my very first Sunday here, I stood up in the pulpit and I said that we are the stories we tell. The narratives and the stories we tell ourselves and our friends and our families, they reorient our lives in a way that we can barely even comprehend until we look backward. And this can be a great and good thing when our lives are determined by the great narrative of Scripture, but it can also become problematic when the only story we tell is our own. As children, we learn by stories. We teach our young about George Washington chopping down his cherry tree as a way to teach about the virtue of telling the truth. We tell stories about Jesus teaching his disciples by the sea that they should treat one another the way they wish to be treated. We use it to tell them about the golden rule. And perhaps the story we tell most, the lesson we hope to share on a regular basis is this. Don't judge a book by its cover. The don't judge a book by its cover story is made manifest in a number of ways, from literally not judging a written book by the cover page to not judging people based on their clothing or their appearance. We tell that story to our children over and over and over again, and here is the greatest irony of all. We adults who tell children not to judge books by their covers judge books by their covers all the time. We are told to love the street beggar, but we only see them for their shabby clothing, their putrid smell, and most of the time we just walk right past them. We're told to love the wealthy, but we only see them for their perfectly pressed shirts, for their obscene jewelry, and we assume that they have no sense of how the world really works. We're told to love people from the South, but we limit our understanding of them to Confederate flags and country music, and repressed racism. We're told to love people from the North, but we only see them for their entitlement, their inability to empathize, and we label them as Yankees. We are told to love the Democrat, but we only see them for their bleeding hearts, their tax-heavy foolishness, and for their total thirst for power. We're told to love the Republican, but we only see them for their love of guns, dismantling of government programs and repressed white superiority. We're told to love the Muslim, but we only see them for their headscarves, for their Sharia law that we hear about on the news all the time, and we blame them for all the problems in the Middle East. We're told to love the Jew, but we see them as being consumed by the pursuit of wealth, always digging up issues from the past, and we assume they have more going on than they let on. We're told to love the atheist, but we only see them for their over-reliance on science, their negative attitudes toward religion, and we assume they're all going to hell. We might not fall into all of those generalizations, but each and every one of us 
are sinners who are guilty of judging books by their covers. Or to put it another way, we only know the stories we are told. And it's like something is keeping us from seeing the Jesus in the other. We barely know anything about the disciples who were on their way to Emmaus on that first Easter. One of them has a name, Cleopas. But other than that, the only information we know is that they are walking and they are talking when Jesus shows up. Regardless of their past decisions or even their faithfulness to the newly risen Christ, it's their proximity to the Lord on that road that has kept them in the story for the last 2,000 years. While they were walking and talking, Jesus came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you talking about? And they stopped still and they looked sad. What a telling sentence. From the mere question of a stranger, they were stopped dead in their tracks as the reality of what had happened set in all over again. Then Cleopas realizes something strange. How could this man, so close to the city, not know what we've been talking about? Everybody's been talking about it. And so he says to Jesus, are you the only one in Jerusalem who does not know what is taking place there these days? Jesus said, what things? What a beautiful question. What had taken place in Jerusalem? What had they seen? What had they heard? What's the story? How would we answer Jesus' question? Imagine if you can walking downtown one afternoon and a stranger walks up to ask us to tell them about Jesus. What would we say? Will we tell the truth of Jesus' horrific death on the cross? Would we add our own editorial reflections in order to cast doubt on what we really think? Do we so believe the story that we could tell it? Because how we answer that question constitutes the very fabric of our identities. As I said before, I announced last week that I'll be leaving St. John's at the end of June for a new appointment. And in the wake of making that announcement last week, I realized that I could probably be a little more probing and perhaps even more controversial from the pulpit since I'm, you know, on the way out. Not that I haven't been plenty controversial since I got here. But, you know, rather than that surface-level faith stuff, we, and by we I mean me, we can talk about the things we might otherwise ignore. So this is what I want to talk about. Since I arrived in Stan four years ago, there has been an ongoing debate about our local high school. It started long before I got here, and friends, it will be here far after I leave. And it doesn't have anything to do with student-teacher dynamics or accreditation or any other of other important educational things. No, the controversy for our local high school is all about the name, Robert E. Lee High. Some, of course, want the name to change. They say it's a relic of the past. It encourages prejudice. It's offensive. It's archaic. It's racist. Some, of course, want the name to stay the same. They say it has a profound history with the community that we just can't wash away. Lee represents a class of gentlemen almost forgotten to the sands of time. We should be proud of the name. It's important. It's patriotic. It's powerful. And this fight goes on and on and on. 
And here's the thing. The name of the school is offensive, and it does hurt some people. Just like the Confederate flag hurts people. They see the name, they see the image, and it brings forth all sorts of animosity and resentment and fear and pain. Yet at the very same time, the name is just a name. It's the history of our community. And changing the name of our high school will change very little. It's as if we believe that by removing the name, we will wash away all the prejudice and all the racism and all the judgment from our entire community. And it doesn't work like that. The name Robert E. Lee will forever evoke positive and negative responses from our community. Some will love it. Some will hate it. But the problem is far bigger than a name. And what do we even really know about Robert E. Lee? Other than the fact that he was a general for the Confederacy during the Civil War. We go on and on about what he represents, both positively and negatively. But do we even know who he really was? Or are we prevented from seeing the Jesus in him too? A long time ago. In fact, it was within a year of the Confederate surrender at Appomattox. There was a fashionable church in Richmond, Virginia, filled with white folk on a communion Sunday. Battered and worn, the South was in quite a state after the war, but these people knew well enough that they had to be in church on Sunday. And on that particular Sunday, in the middle of a worship service, an unwanted black man entered the back doors and he walked down the center aisle of the church. All eyes from the congregation were following him, and the preacher stood stupefied in the pulpit. The black man walked all the way down the aisle under the weight of the prejudice and the judgment of the church, and he got to the front, and he knelt down at the altar, and he put out his hands to receive Jesus. Can you imagine the whispers that went back and forth over those pews? Can you almost hear the hushed, hateful words in the house of the Lord all those years ago? That congregation sat there silently and completely shocked by what they had witnessed, and the buzz of anticipation started to ring. It was sensing the room's pulse that a distinguished old man from the church stood up, and he walked up toward the altar. Some leaned over to their friends and spouses with whispers of gratitude for the church member handling the situation. Others sighed with relief knowing that he would take care of this awful interruption. But when the man arrived at the front, he knelt down beside his black brother. He wrapped his arms around him and he started to pray. Within seconds, the entire congregation stood up as if they were transfixed by the Spirit, and they walked to the front, and they knelt down and followed his example. And do you know who he was? Robert E. Lee. But we don't know that story, because we limit an entire man's life to one thing he did. So is that story, that story of him going up to the front to redeem what the congregation had done, is that enough to justify keeping the name of the high school here? Or does the history of the South 
The continued prejudice, even today, toward people of color necessitate a change of name, regardless of what Lee did in that church. I don't know. I don't know. But what I do know is that unless we are willing to open our eyes to Jesus in one another, unless we are willing to kneel at the altar with people who are different than us, unless we are willing to try and answer Jesus' question, nothing will ever change. We make so many assumptions of people without ever doing the good and the difficult work of learning who they really are. We see a bumper sticker, we hear an accent, or we observe a skin tone, or we read a Facebook post, and we let that dictate who those people are to us. When truthfully, what we make of those limited observations says far more about us than the ones we see. Are you the only one in Jerusalem who does not know what has taken place there in those days? What things? They talked the rest of their way on the road to Emmaus. They told the mysterious man what they had seen and what they had heard. And the more they walked, the more they talked, Jesus interpreted for them the scriptures. And when night came, Jesus continued to walk on, but the two men invited him to stay in the city. So they gathered at a table. Jesus took a loaf of bread. He broke it. He offered it to them, and their eyes were opened. Jesus opened the eyes to the truth of the ones who were sitting there about the one they were with. Through the simple and ordinary event of breaking bread, the profound and extraordinary reality of the resurrection was made manifest before them. On the roads of life, we are often prevented from recognizing Jesus in the other. Instead, we make assumptions about them and judgments about them, and we ignore them. But when we encounter someone different from us, and we take time to sit at a table together, when we let the story of Christ reshape our story, when we can kneel at the altar beside someone who does not look like us or think like us or talk like us, Jesus will open our eyes. I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Would you all please bow your heads and pray with me? Oh God, open our eyes. Open our eyes to the symbols and the names and the different events of our shared history that bring offense to other people and not to us. Help us learn, O oh Lord, what it means to empathize with those on the margins. For we here, O oh Lord, are part of what we think is the majority. And we look out at the world and assume everyone else should be like us. So for this, O oh Lord, we give you thanks that you have called us not to be a people of the majority, but to be people of the margins. Open our eyes, O oh Lord, to the plight of those who are weak, those who are judged, those who are afraid. For us, O oh Lord, that means open our eyes to those who are black, 
those who are poor, those who are gay, anyone who is not like us. For, Lord, until we open our eyes to who they really are, we'll never follow you. Because following you, O Lord, means following your Son to the margins, to the people that we so often judge. So, Lord, we pray. We pray that you might crucify our hearts and our judgments and our assumptions and resurrect us into a new way of life. That we might not see anyone as other, but instead see them as brother and sister. This we are bold to pray, O Lord, in your Son's name. Amen.